0: Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. We'll be covering the the entire chapter, Lord willing, this morning. Chapters 21 and 22 of Genesis, as we've walked our way through Genesis, these chapters are high points. Of course, it's not the end of the book by any means, but there's a bit of a climax At this point in Genesis, particularly regarding the account of Abraham and Sarah. Commentator John Currid says, we now reach the climax to the cycle of events involving Abraham. He has repeatedly received the promise of God that a son would be born to him and Sarah. He has been disappointed time and time again. He's even resorted to various means to bring about God's promise, such as having a child through Hagar, the handmaid of Sarah, or adopting a certain Eliezer of Damascus to be his heir. All these, however, were human methods, and they did not bring about the desired result. But now, God's promise to Abraham is fulfilled in the birth of Isaac through Sarah. Of course, chapter 22 Next time we will see, once Isaac has been born and has grown up to a certain degree, that then Abraham has the greatest test of his faith in all his life, when God asks of him his only son, whom he loves, Isaac. But this week, we come to uh, what John Currid just called God's promise to Abraham being fulfilled in the birth of Isaac through Sarah. Actually, I'd like to qualify that a little bit. The events of chapter one are only a beginning of fulfillment, really. God's promises to Abraham included numberless offspring and a permanent homeland. And ultimately, the world's salvation. So what we have in Genesis 21 are really early installments or down payments, or deposits made on those promises, you might say. Finally, they begin to taste the fulfillment of the promises. Isaac is born. Now he has an heir from his own body through Sarah, as God had promised. And later in the chapter, we will see more about uh, Abraham. Continuing to have a great name that others honor as God had said he would, and, and settling down, putting down roots in a, a little, in a small way, in this promised land, which is not yet truly his. And yet there's these deposits on the promises. So I think the big idea that we'll see in chapter 21 today is that the Lord gives short term deposits on his long term promises. The Lord gives short term deposits of his long term promises. We'll see the the account unfolded first of all, and then as usual we will go on to apply the account further to our lives. First of all, the the account unfolded, verses one through seven we see Abraham's offspring secured. <laughs> Finally, Abraham's promised offspring, the promised seed, is secured. Verses 1-5, first of all in that section, Isaac's miraculous birth. Let's start reading in verse 1. And Remember, this is just after the debacle we read about in chapter 20, <clears throat> where uh, Sarah was almost another man's wife. She was taken by a king and God got her back, despite the fact that Abraham was no help. <laughs> despite all the human sin and frailty involved, finally we have Isaac's miraculous birth and Abraham's offspring is thus secured. Starting in verse one, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Again, Isaac is a name meaning in some way laughter. Or he laughs. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. It emphasizes here that Abraham and Sarah are indeed in old age, although this is the patriarchal era when it seems there were Longer lifespans, the aging process was stretched out a bit more than today in some ways, but still, Abraham and Sarah were way past the age for childbirth, for childbearing. Sarah is 90 years old, Abraham is 100. And now God chooses that's the right time to fulfill his promise of a son to them. And there's this obedience this obedience of faith from Abraham, he calls the name of his son who was born to him whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. That's the name God had picked out. When Abraham had laughed at the prospect of bearing a child in his old age through Sarah, God had said, oh, and you're going to call him laughter, Isaac. Again, quoting the commentator John Currid, he, he refers to, the, to an old Puritan named Gernal, He says, Gernal put it this way, God's promises are dated, but with a mysterious character. And for 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 lack of skill in God's chronology, we are prone to think God forgets us. When indeed we forget ourselves in being so bold to set God a time of our own and in being angry that he comes not just then to us. Then John Currid goes on. He says, God's timing is not our timing. He is the sovereign one. And he is the one who sets the dates and the times. We are called to be patient and wait on the Lord. An outstanding instance of this here in Scripture. Wait on the Lord. past the time of human hope and God will answer. And he will fulfill his promises. And we also see here, as Abraham's offspring is secured, we see Sarah's godly laughter. Verses 6-7. through You recall, back in chapter 18, Sarah had laughed in unbelief when God had again been saying, in a year's time, Sarah will have a son. She had doubted the promise, and she laughed. But now, verse 6 we read, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have born him a son in his old age. Sort of matches up with what the writer to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 says about Sarah. Verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Whereas Meredith Klein says, by the gift of Isaac, laughter, God made Sarah the mother of the covenant nation. See Isaiah 51.2. And ultimately of Jesus, the joy of all the earth. The way was now open for the realization of the covenant promises in their fullness. Type and anti-type. So he's saying, put it in other words, in the birth of Isaac is encapsulated so much. It's the key to all God's promises being fulfilled. Right down to Jesus himself and whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. The promise seed greater than Isaac. But it's all through Isaac. Now we see... After we we saw Abraham's offspring secured, now we come to verses eight through twenty one. And we see Isaac's inheritance secured. Because remember, there's another boy who is a son of Abraham, but not through Sarah. Through Sarah's slave girl, the Egyptian named Hagar. That had been Sarah's and Abraham's attempt to, in their eyes, fulfill God's promise. But in a, a humanly reasonable way, since they thought they were too old. Sarah thought was she was too old, at least at that point, to have children. And so, Ishmael had been born to Hagar. And now Ishmael, when Isaac is born, is about 14 years old. So now there are two sons of Abraham. Isaac, it has been made plain, is God's promised heir for Abraham. But Ishmael's older. Than Isaac, and of course, in that culture, as in many cultures, the the eldest is the one who would normally receive the inheritance. So, what's going to happen here? Well, we see there is actually, from very early in Isaac's life, there is the possibility of conflict that arises. But in that process, we see that Isaac's inheritance is secured. Verses 8 through 21. So first of all, we see Ishmael's laughter and expulsion. Verses 8 through 14. Ishmael's laughter and expulsion. Let's read that section, verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. We'll come back to that, that word for laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. That's ironic, since it was Sarah's idea in the first place to have Ishmael. But verse 11, and the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and the skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Let's slow down a little bit. Isaac grew and was weaned. <laughs> and here's where our culture doesn't really match up at all. That's okay. Um, scholars tend to be pretty much agreed that um, often in that culture, the kid wouldn't be weaned till he was maybe three years old. Some say as late as five, but uh, at least three. And so some years pass, a couple of years at least pass, uh, until Isaac is weaned, and this is a big deal. And and think also of cultures where perhaps a lot of babies don't survive infancy, right? Now we've reached this milestone. It's like the biggest birthday party you've ever seen. Uh, Abraham throws a great feast, um, There's actually sort of a play on words here, that Um, the child became great, you might say. He grew. The child got big, and so Abraham made a big feast on the day when Isaac was weaned. So it's a time for celebrating the heir that God has provided Abraham, who is not through a concubine, but through Sarah, his wife. But then Sarah sees the boy who's not even named here. His name was Ishmael according to the earlier chapters, he see, she sees the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing, it says. This word for Ishmael's laughter has the same Hebrew root as Isaac's name. <laughs> um, often throughout Genesis, especially in, in the account of Isaac, there are these, these plays on words relating to Isaac's name. But here, this, this idea of laughter is used with dark overtones. It's quite a flexible word. might imply things like joking or mocking or taunting even. The Apostle Paul goes so far in Galatians 4.29, talking about this very text. He goes so far as to say that Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. That's the word he uses. Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. At the very least, Ishmael was having fun at Isaac's expense. It may have been done laughingly, but it was malicious. Let's say Isaac was about three years old. Then Ishmael was about 17 years old. Um, Old enough to know better, certainly. Sadly, it's, as Matthew Henry um, observes here from long ago, it's not uncommon for um, children even to sin in this way. It's not uncommon for older boys to mistreat younger boys, often acting as if it's just good fun. But older children and their parents should be admonished from this account that their disrespectful actions in mistreating other children cannot be laughed off. Matthew Henry says, note, number one, God takes notice of what children say and do in their play and will reckon with them if they say or do amiss, though their parents do not. But of course, there's a bigger picture here than just the typical sins of children against each other. In this case, Ishmael's actions showed contempt for his father's chosen heir. And Sarah noticed. And when Sarah says that she's speaking very contemptuously in her own way, she doesn't even name the boy or his mother. But Sarah says, Cast out this slave woman with her son. Sarah's emphasizing that they're way out of line for their station. Cast out this slave woman and her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. When she says that, Sarah is, according to the culture of the time, what Sarah wants is for Hagar and Ishmael to be set free. They're to be turned out of the household, no longer slaves, but in return, they are to disavow any claim, as Crud says, disavow any claim that they might have on Abraham's estate. Sarah is concerned, and God says it's somewhat of a genuine concern. She's concerned that this will not go well with an older brother in the household who might have a claim to the inheritance. And already there's, there's issues, there's problems. Now, we don't know. Perhaps Sarah overreacted to a certain degree in her emotions and maybe the heat in which she said this. We don't know. Seems likely. And yet God said, you know, Abraham, she's right. And this is actually my plan, though. I know you don't want to admit that, Abraham. Abraham was at first unwilling to listen to Sarah, but God tells him to listen. With the assurance, of course, that God's promises to Ishmael would still be kept. God had already promised Abraham, As for Ishmael, I've heard you. I'll make him a great nation that can't be counted. But my great promise is to you, Abraham. <laughs> the salvation of the world. All nations are being blessed in you, etc. My promise will be fulfilled in Isaac, God had said. And yet God is abundant in goodness. And he would take care of Ishmael out of honor for Abraham. So God is telling Abraham, you've got to trust me, but you need to do something hard now. You need to forcibly make your oldest son and his mother go their own way. That would be heart-wrenching. Abraham loved his boy, even if Ishmael had acted foolishly. But Once God speaks to Abraham, apparently at night, it says that Abraham uh, got up early in the morning. Verse 14, he rose early in the morning. He took bread and a skin of water, gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. Some have noticed this this is another trial of Abraham's faith concerning a son of his. It's not the greatest trial he will face. That comes in the next chapter with Isaac. But already God is training him to live by faith when it's really hard. When it goes against all his emotional framework. God is already strengthening him in doing the right thing when it hurts. But we... Then follow Ishmael and his mother Hagar into the wilderness, as it said, she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba, the south of the promised land, where it's very dry, very inhospitable desert, basically. And uh, so we've seen Ishmael, we've seen his laughter and then his expulsion. He set out on his own with his mother. But then we see God's goodness as we see Ishmael's cry and his deliverance. Verses 15 through 21. Ishmael's cry and deliverance. Verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she, Hagar, put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shop. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. For some reason, it seems Ishmael was, I don't know if he was sick or what the case was, but he, uh, he was giving out before his mother, apparently, in the heat. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God, probably the same angel of the Lord who had appeared to Hagar before when she had run away from her mistress, when she was pregnant in the first place with Ishmael, Again, the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bull. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is remarkable, really. They're in the wilderness of Beersheba. It's very harsh. Um, it only receives six to 12 inches of rain per year, at least today. There's these little there's this low brush, these little dwarf bushes and that's about it out there. You have to know where water is. And Hagar got lost. Wherever she was trying to go, she didn't know where water was. Ishmael is is probably very dehydrated and she leaves him under a bush and goes off a little ways because she doesn't want to watch while he dies as she sees it. And she starts sobbing. And apparently he is too. Because it says God heard the voice of the boy. Doesn't make clear whether Ishmael actually prayed on this occasion. It may be more likely that just again, just like his mother, he is weeping and God hears his voice. And the Lord is a God who meets expelled slaves in the wilderness and gives them water. Which is maybe why Moses' Hebrew wording of this account is, its actually, it heavily echoes the Exodus account. <laughs> but in any case, it's probably just color for the, the narrative here, but God doesn't desert Hagar and Ishmael because, because Ishmael blew it. God's promises stand for Hagar and for Ishmael. So he, he calls to them from heaven. And he reinforces Hagar despite her fears. He reinforces her trust in his promises. Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Now go to him up, lift up the boy. Hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then it says God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. Often in these areas there would be a well that was covered And there would be a mark of some sort that you had to know what to look for to see where the well was. Uh, That may be what's happening here. In any case, God, through her cheers, he, he clarifies her vision in some way so that, oh, she sees the well is right there. And they have water. And notice, they're driven out into the wilderness, but God is with the boy and he grows up. And... This harsh environment, this harsh environment, it becomes, it becomes home for Ishmael. He becomes, by God's goodness, Ishmael becomes very much at home in a place like this. It toughens him up. It prepares him for the life God has for him. What seemed like a curse is a blessing for him. He becomes an expert archer, a hunter, which is how you need to survive in lots of these places. He doesn't die. Far from it. He grows up. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. So probably the northern Sinai peninsula of today. Which is very barren. (laughs) And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt, it says. Backing up, one thing I forgot to mention. Again, there's wordplay here. Because God heard the voice of the boy. Ishmael's name means God hears. So again... It's emphasizing how God heard the one named God hears. But when Hagar um, chooses a bride for Ishmael from Egypt, it's from her home country. You know, the father would usually choose the son's bride. And so this is really emphasizing for us how Abraham is truly out of the picture for the most part in Ishmael's life. We'll see that there's some sort of relationship over the years because Ishmael is able to come back and join Isaac in burying their father many years later. Um, It's not that there's no communication, I don't think. But Ishmael is truly on his own. His mother chooses a bride for him, not his father. And all this, it's for Ishmael's good, but it's, more importantly, to secure Isaac's inheritance. Because Isaac is to have no rivals as God's chosen heir. Now, as we finish out the chapter, verses 22 through 34, we see something else that might sound a little random to us. But Abimelech comes back into the picture from chapter 20, that Philistine king. And in what follows, we see Abraham's dwelling secured. So Abraham's offspring secured, Isaac's inheritance secured, now Abraham's dwelling secured. Remember, in God's promises, something else very important besides an heir, besides offspring, is land. And Abraham's a sojourner, he's an alien, a foreigner, who, who moves around from place to place. And he will not see the, the true fulfillment of the promised land belonging to him in his lifetime. And that, that means there's a lot of insecurities in his life. But here in verses 22 through 34, we do see his dwelling secured um, in a unique way. Verses 22 through 24, we see Abimelech's proposed alliance. As I said, Abimelech, this Philistine king who had made an um, agreement with Abraham that Abraham could settle where he wanted. Uh, Abraham comes back into, excuse me, Abimelech comes back into the picture. Verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So Abimelech proposes an alliance for the sake of their descendants that their peoples would be in harmony and not in conflict as God blesses Abraham. Again, there's this dynamic. God has said, whoever blesses you, Abraham, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's this dynamic at work again. Abimelech recognizes God's blessing on Abraham, and he wants to be in harmony with that and not in conflict with Abraham. So Abraham says, yes, I'll I'll swear an oath for a covenant, But there's one little problem. (laughs) Verses 25 through 32, there's the issue of Abraham's covenant well. Verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven new lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven new lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven new lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beer Sheba. Or Beer, the well, Sheba. of could be, either be of seven or of the covenant, of the oath. <laughs> Because there, both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. What's happening here? Basically, Abraham says, Sure, I'd I'd love to have a good relationship with your country, Abimelech, but there's a problem. Your servants, those who answer to you, have seized a well that I dug. Remember where this is. This is in the region of Beersheba. Same region Hagar needed water. You need water here if you have large flocks and herds. You need all the the water rights you can get. And Abraham had gone through the blood, sweat, and tears of digging a well. And then these Philistines, some of them, maybe claiming it was in Abimelech's name, they took the well from him, said, that's not yours, that's ours. So then when Abimelech comes wanting a a treaty, an alliance, a covenant, Abraham says, certainly, but your people took my well. And Abimelech ends up saying, I did not know this happened. I don't know who did it. And you haven't told me about it till now. And it seems Abraham accepts Abimelech's word on that. The idea is Abraham will get the well back. So they make a covenant, but Abraham gives seven ewe lambs along with sheep and oxen that may be, they may be killed and uh, sacrificed or perhaps eaten as part of the covenant uh, ceremony. It's not clear, but Abraham, apart from that, sets apart seven ewe lambs, gives them to Abimelech um, as a special sign, special present, reminding everyone that this is Abraham's well that he dug. So the place is called Well of the Seven, or it could be translated Well of the Oath, Beersheba. And the chapter ends with Abraham's secure worship. He, uh, he has more security again for the time being where he lives. He has water for his flocks and herds. And so he worships. Verses 32-34. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham journeyed many days in the land of the Philistines. A tamarisk tree at maturity can grow up to 30 feet tall and it gives a good amount of shade. This is the only time Genesis mentions Abraham planting a tree. Probably it was an additional way of laying his claim to the land where the well was. I dug this well. I planted this tree. uh, This is my spot. And Abraham knew that his security and his sojournings was not rooted in human covenants, but rather his security was rooted in his covenant with the everlasting God. He remembers in a unique way at this point all he's been through, And he calls on the name of the Lord as the everlasting God. Whatever else may change, whichever of Abraham's resources might be taken or restored to him, in good times and in bad, God and his promises will still be there. They remain the same. He does his best in his affairs with his fellow men, with Abimelech, making covenants, Dealing kindly and uprightly with people. But that's not where his security lies. He knows where it is. He serves the everlasting God who won't change. And who will always uphold his promises to Abraham. So we've unfolded the account. Let's apply it a little further. I think there's many joyful things to get out of this account. Or to be reminded of at least. First of all, when human hope vanishes, rejoice in God's promise. When human hope vanishes, rejoice in God's promise. God often waits until human hope is gone to fulfill his promises. And then all we can do is laugh with wonder and delight at what only God could do. Like Sarah did. Who would have said to Abraham (laughs) that his wife Sarah would nurse a child in her 90s? Only God can do that. Sarah might have reflected on the fact that she had schemed and connived because she thought she had to get this done for her husband and it all ended in trouble. And then God, when all human hope was gone, God came and very easily fulfilled this promise. And all Sarah could do was be filled with laughter and amazement. God waited until Sarah was 90 and Abraham was 100 years old to give them Isaac. And we see this pattern often in Scripture. The Lord led Israel to be trapped between the mountains and the Red Sea as as the Pharaoh's army ran them down as they left Egypt. And that was to set the stage for the parting of the sea and the overthrow of the Egyptians, which actually completed the promised redemption of Israel from Egypt, from their slavery. And so when Israel was trapped and terrified, this is what God said through Moses. Exodus fourteen thirteen. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Later in the days of the judges, God reduces Gideon's men to 300 guys. Intentionally. Because God says, if I leave you any more than these 300, Israel will find a way to take the credit for what I do. (laughs) So all Gideon has left is 300 men. In the face of countless Midianite invaders, it says... The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. But with, with those odds, God sent these 300 men to trumpet and shout God's victory as God threw the enemy into confusion. What did they have to do? Well, at the Red Sea, God had told Israel to Just be silent. In this case, God gave Gideon instructions. Gideon divided his 300 men into three groups. And it says they came to the outskirts of this vast camp of the enemy at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow and they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And then it says they started fighting one another. God loves to do this. He loves to be sure that we know there's no human hope in this setting for God's promises to be fulfilled. Then he will do something. And... God ordained that wicked men crucify his son, the promised Messiah, in whom all the hopes of God's people were bound up. God ordained that wicked men kill the Messiah. And it was only once this crucified Savior was dead and buried that on the third day God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his throne as Lord and Christ. When human hope vanishes, rejoice in God's promise because it's going to be fulfilled. When it seems too, that like it's too late for your prayers to be answered, that's when God often delights to answer. We read about Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, in the scripture reading this morning. He knew that he and Elizabeth were too old to have a child, and that's when Gabriel announced that Zechariah's prayer was about to be answered. The angel said to him, Luke 1.13, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. We can think of all sorts of examples of this on the individual level for each of us, but we can also think of this when we're discouraged about the prospects of God's church. When the church seems too downtrodden and despised, or maybe too flawed and corrupt to ever see gospel victories again, then the Lord Christ will ride forth for her salvation and for the doom of her enemies. That's how he loves to work. After darkness, light. We get the phrase from church history. But when that happens, we must never pretend that this was just a happy coincidence. No, Christ Jesus rules over all for the good of his elect. The Lord has made the greatest promises of all to his people. When those promises seem for one of us or for all of us to be now impossible, that's when we have to lift up our heads because our redemption draws nigh. We must rejoice because the Lord is king. But, What if it's our sin that seems to hide God's face? Well, that brings us to our second point of application. Particularly thinking about Ishmael. When human sin ruins, look to God's goodness. When human sin ruins things, look to God's goodness. I love this story where... You start thinking in the narrative, the way it's going, the way the story is going. Ishmael did something bad, so, so he's Ishmael's now the antagonist, right? He's the bad guy in the story. And then look what God does. God cares for Ishmael. God has goodness to spare. Ishmael's sin was serious. And it had been the occasion for both he and his mother to lose everything. Everything. They're pushed out of the household, which was a rich household, but they have nothing from it. And now their drinking water is gone. That's losing everything. Because Ishmael was stupid. And all Hagar and Ishmael could do was weep and wail. Can you hear Ishmael's pitiable cry? He's a young man, but he's at death's door now. And it's his own fault. He despised all God's promises to his father and persecuted his little brother, the one through whom the world would be saved. That's the one Ishmael persecuted. How could he seriously think that God would still bless him as Abraham's child? Abraham himself had cast him out. Can you hear what Hagar is thinking in her sobs? When Hagar was pregnant with this boy, God himself had said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. That's well and good, but all that seems to be off the table now. She's cast out of Abraham's entire tribe. She's now a single mother with not enough to keep body and soul together. And that's when God says to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. I will make your boy into a great nation. Have you ever felt something like what Hagar and Ishmael must have felt? Did you ever think you had fallen so far that God no longer cared? Well, when sin brings ruin, look to God's goodness. God Often has a well in the desert, so to speak, from which he will give you the water of life. He he, he sees your tears, he hears your cries, and never think that he's run out of mercy for you. As he says in Joel chapter 2 to his sinful people, verse 12 Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Turn to Psalm 107 quickly. Psalm 107. This psalm lists various scenarios in which people have often found themselves, out of which God rescued them. And the whole idea of the psalm is uh, that the redeemed of the Lord ought to say so, that the Lord's steadfast love endures forever. They ought to say so from experience, because of all the times God has come to their aid. But I want you to see a couple of the scenarios it lists in which people often find themselves. Starting in verse 4 of Psalm 107. It says, Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. But then it goes on, where explicitly people were in the trouble therein for their own because it's their own fault. Verse ten Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God, and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Then there's one more scenario, verse 17. Some were fools. Through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He sent out His word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. And tell of his deeds in songs of joy. People are sinful, but God is good. This is who our God is. This isn't the exception to the rule for him. This is how he works. So look to him when you see your sin. Third, when human security wavers, rest in God's timelessness. Like Abraham, calling on the Lord, the everlasting God. When human security wavers, rest in God's timelessness. Are you upset and anxious because yet again there's chaos in your life? Have you been in that spot where you can't sleep? Because of your feelings of insecurity and helplessness? I'm sure Abraham experienced plenty of that. Sometimes you feel like you cannot protect yourself and your loved ones from seemingly random circumstances and from evil people. Things just seem to finally be going well. You're rejoicing in answered prayer, seeing God's promises fulfilled. And then someone takes your wealth, so to speak. That thing you obtained with your own blood, sweat and tears. Now it's gone. The water source you need just just to make it. You're a stranger in exile on earth. You're trying to live in obedience to God, but you seem to always have more trouble. You can't seem to catch your breath. And God seems to have looked the other way. Well, do what Abraham did and rest in the everlasting God. That was his stability, his security. There's one other specific text in the Old Testament that uses that name for the Lord, the everlasting God. And it's in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right, that is, what's my right, what, what's due to me, is disregarded by my God. Why do you talk that way, Israel, that God's forgotten you or that he's not strong enough to to save you, to help you. Verse 28, Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Final application. When human doubt looms, when human doubt looms, consider God's deposits. Remember the, the big idea of this sermon, the Lord gives short-term deposits of his long-term promises, right? So when our human doubt looms up, we have to consider God's deposits on his promises. Perhaps, well, I shouldn't say perhaps. I know there were times after this that Abraham would have been tempted to, to again doubt God's long-range promises. But then he'd look at that boy, Isaac. God gave gave us Isaac when there was no way. (laughs) That's a deposit on God's promise. And if God did that, he'll do the rest. What has God given us as deposits in the sense of a pledge or a down payment? on his promises. <clears throat> well, he's given us the cross and he's given us his spirit, his Holy Spirit. Some sample text from the New Testament as we close this out. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 18. Paul says to believers in Corinth that surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You can also translate that word as a down payment, a deposit. The Spirit is the down payment, the guarantee from God of all his promises. Likewise in Ephesians 1.11, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So we have an inheritance in Christ. Paul goes on, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, there's that word again, who's the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Or 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1-5. through For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So Paul is speaking of the hope of the bodily resurrection. We have a tent right now. We're going to have a a permanent building to dwell in one day. But then he says, verse 5 He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, as a down payment. And then there's those famous words about the cross in Romans 5. where Paul says hope does not put us to shame after saying we've been justified by faith and therefore have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God showed, he he demonstrated already his love for us when Christ died for us. If you doubt God's present and future love, consider his love at the cross. Jesus has already died for you. That's quite the demonstration of all that you will receive. If you doubt your bodily resurrection and eternal inheritance that we just read about, consider the work of God's Holy Spirit within you. He's already raised you to life when you were dead in sins. Consider the joys you've already inherited because Christ has given you his spirit. You're already reconciled to God. You're already a new creation. You already pursue the holiness you once hated. That's a miracle. And that's a deposit to show you all God's promises are true. And the promised Christ who is coming again for you, he's already come. Like Isaac, Christ is the promised offspring of Abraham, whose supernatural conception and birth guaranteed the fulfillment of all God's promises. Why are we so joyful at Christmas time, which we just celebrated? Because it's a deposit. Because it's such a, a concrete demonstration that God fulfills his promises. He's already sent his son, and his son's already died for sinners. And if God so loved this fallen world that he gave his only begotten Son, then there's no reason for God to withhold anything else. And there's no reason for him to fail in his promises. He has all the power he needs, and he's not unwilling to be true to his word. His promises are true. Consider his works and rest in them and rejoice. That's how we can be joyful Christians. By not looking at everything around us happening. But looking at God and remembering what he's already done for us. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we thank you for your living word which you breathed out. We thank you that you've given us even this Old Testament text that as the Apostle said, we through the endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures might have hope. Please encourage your people's hearts today. And as we've spoken of the cross of Christ and the Savior who came to die in the place of sinners to give them eternal life, Please open the eyes of anyone who may not know Christ as Savior. Help them to see that they are a sinner, as undeserving as any we read of in the Old Testament or the New. But help them to see that Christ is a good and great Savior. And that if they call on Him in repentant faith to be His, He will wash their sins away. He'll make them new people. He'll give them an an eternal inheritance. He'll reconcile them to God. And again, for the rest of us, Lord, help us to live by faith and get our eyes back on you and your promises. You haven't changed and your goodness hasn't changed, but we're very changeable. Father, we need you to work in our hearts and restore us according to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.